Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it, I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously, with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment, okay? So help me out. All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here in chapter four, we were finishing chapter four with the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And we saw where Jesus had moved, basically headquartered his ministry instead of move headquartered. Headquartered his ministry in Capernaum. And there, while he was in Capernaum, it talked about it was a fulfillment of prophecy by the prophet Isaiah that those who dwelt in that particular region, Zebulun, Naphtali, would see a great light. And this is the Messiah and the preaching, the coming of the Messiah and the preaching of the kingdom of God. And then we saw the calling of Jesus for disciples as Matthew label it here as he would have it, the calling of his four disciples, that is Simon and Andrew, James and John, and he was calling them to full-time ministry. And that is to follow him at all times as Jesus proclaimed his own ministry. And that ministry being the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we understand that there was a slight difference in what John was proclaiming when he said the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That is, John was preparing a people for the Messiah. That when he, point, when he should point out the Messiah, people should therefore begin to follow him. At Jesus' time in his ministry, he has found out now that John has been put into prison. Jesus began his official public ministry. He proclaims the same message. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, but there's a slight nuance. And that is he speaks to and of himself. And what we have to understand is what Jesus begins to do in this proclamation. Kingdom of heaven is at hand is he is offering himself as the king of the Jewish people, as the Messiah of the Jews, those that one whom the prophets, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament spoke about should come and that in receiving Jesus as Messiah, they would receive the coming kingdom that only the Messiah can bring. So let me say that again. Listen closely on this, guys, because it becomes so necessary to understand what Jesus was doing and why Jesus was doing these things. So again, to receive Jesus as Messiah is to receive the coming kingdom of God because there is no kingdom without the Messiah. So you must first believe that Jesus is that coming one of God. And this is what Jesus was basically doing in this particular scenario. So what did he begin to do? So he began proclaiming 
to be Messiah. And as it was and in the latter part of Matthew chapter four and in the proclaiming to be the Messiah, he had to back it up. And this is what we spent a great deal of time with in concerning miracles, as people would simply call them. But they were basically signs, things that prove that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, as Jesus would later say, if you do not believe me for my words, then believe me for my works, the signs that I perform, proving that I am indeed the Messiah, the King of Israel. So that is what must be understood in chapter four as we move into chapter five, dealing with the issue of the Beatitudes. And we're going to talk more about that as we work into it. But keep in mind what Jesus is doing is he is offering the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom. Okay. Because as many Gentiles, we really mess it all up, but I don't have time to get into it right now. It's not the Jews were not looking to go to heaven. They were looking for a coming kingdom, a kingdom that only the Messiah can bring. And when the Messiah come, he would establish this kingdom that would make Israel the chief of all nations and establish righteousness throughout all of the earth. Okay. So they were looking for a coming kingdom. And so in order to receive such a kingdom, you must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what he was doing. That's why he did all the miracles because if there is no, if there is no acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, King of the Jews, there would be no ex coming kingdom itself that the Jewish people would have. Okay. So you have to keep those things in mind. All right. Now let's get into chapter five when we are dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. And remember this section covers chapters five, six, and seven. We'll talk more about it as we walk, walk through the text. Okay. But we get into this particular section as the first of the section is called, we normally call them the Beatitudes and Beatitudes is nothing more than a Latin derivation of the word blessed. And that's what we see in this first section verses one through 12 this first section as Jesus is pronouncing blessedness upon, upon people with certain things in mind. We'll go through all of that. Okay. So that's why it's called the Beatitudes it derives from the Latin of blessedness. All right. So now let's begin chapter five. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, so now remember the last time we were in Matthew four at the very end, large crowds were following Jesus from everywhere. And so with these large crowds continue to follow Jesus. And, and of course, Jesus is ministering in Galilee. He goes to a mountainous place or a hill and notice the crowds are following him there. And he sat down. Now, all I want to bring to you is this. It was the normal course of a rabbi. And Jesus is understood by the people as a rabbi, which literally means a teacher. It was the normal course for the rabbis to sit when they began to teach. So we see Jesus acting as a 
rabbi as he begins to sit and teach the people. And we see all of these people coming to him and he begins to open his mouth to teach them. Also, too, there is a certain type of prefigurement that is being seen here. That is, notice Jesus coming to a mountain and speaking to the people concerning the law. Now, all of this in some way or another gives the appearance of Moses. Because remember, Exodus chapter 19 and then Exodus chapter 20. Where were they? The people of Israel back in the time of Moses were at Mount Sinai. And what did Moses do? Moses gave them the law of God, law of Moses, from Mount Sinai. So Jesus is here being prefigured as a type of Moses. Or in other words, he fulfills the prophecy of Moses. When Moses spoke in Deuteronomy, said a prophet, God will raise up a prophet among you and he will be like me. And in everything that he says, listen to him. And the one who does not listen to that prophet that is to come shall be cut off from among the people. So Jesus here fulfills this in this type of advent in the sense of Moses in the mountain and Jesus in the mountain, Moses giving the law and Jesus giving, or even we can say interpreting the law. And another thing that I want to say before we get into the text too, as, and, and you'll see this when we get into it, as Jesus is speaking, he is speaking as the Messiah, the one who is able to give them the kingdom that is the coming kingdom. And he is addressing the issues of such ones who are able to come into the kingdom. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that as we move through the text. But here, consider like the anticipation of the people. Will I be able to get into the kingdom? Did the Pharisees, who are the teachers, remember I told you, the Pharisees were the teachers of the people. Not the, not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees and also the scribes, which were a group of the Pharisees. But nevertheless, the Pharisees, am I, if I listen to the teachings of the Pharisees, will I get into the kingdom? So Jesus is basically addressing this issue as a whole. And as we work through the text, according to the teaching of Jesus on the mountain, Jesus will be addressing the Pharisees as well as their teachings itself. Okay. But nevertheless, so the idea is the Messiah who can give you the kingdom. And if you let me say it this way, but in the mind of the Jew, am I qualified to come into that kingdom of the Messiah? Okay. So this is what you must understand as we work through these uh, five, six, and seven, chapters five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mountain. And it was why I told you guys at the very end of the, of the teaching in Matthew 4 that even though some things principally apply in the Sermon on the Mountain, all things do not apply to us today in the Sermon on the Mountain. And we'll see that once again, as I keep saying, as we work through the text. Okay. Now, with that intro in chapter five and Jesus positioning himself to teach, let's get into the actual teachings of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, now, this is actually a section of teaching, but let, let's get into it. So the first thing he began to say is blessed, and that Greek word is makarioi, 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 which means not happy. You have to understand this. It is not proper to understand this makarioi to be happy because happiness is feelings and emotion based. Jesus is going far beyond simply being happy because he's going to come down later on in this very section to talk about being persecuted for righteousness and being persecuted for his namesake. So you are not going to be emotionally happy in persecution and suffering. So what Jesus is saying when he says blessed, it means spiritually happy spiritually satisfied and spiritually fulfilled are such ones. And that's what he means when he says, blessed. You are in a very deeper sense, spiritually satisfied and spiritually of a blessed state, because that's the idea of what he's talking about as a whole, the state, all right? Now, there is something else too in this particular section, and we'll deal with each one of them one by one. It all applies to Jesus in some way or another. We'll tell you about it. All of this blessedness, this spiritual, spiritual satisfaction, or this deep spiritual abiding happiness refers and relates to the Messiah in certain way. And it has to do with the individual as it pertains to the Messiah. Now, even though Jesus did not go into great detail, it points to him. All of this points to him. And it's so beautiful. And even that, remember the whole thing I was talking about how Moses was given the commandments from the mountains. But first, before Moses got, gave the commandments from Mount Sinai, it was God himself who gave the commandments. And notice there were the 10 commandments. And we said earlier in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, that these commandments can be dealt with man's relationship, the first half of them, to God. And then the second half will be man's relationship to men. And notice, even Jesus deals with the same idea as man's relationship to God, or in other words, the believer's relationship to the God man, to Jesus, the Messiah. So with all of that, so now let's get into it so I can make you see just what Jesus is trying to say. One by one, blessed are the poor in spirit. So you guys know that we will not do all of chapter five. We will definitely have to break it up, hopefully in just two video lessons. But blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritually happy, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So now what does he mean? We know what the blessed part is about. That deep abiding grace of happiness, that spiritual abiding in good shape with God. Why? To whom? And these are, are to his disciples. 
the poor in spirit. So who are or what does Jesus mean when he says the poor in spirit? He simply means these are ones who understand their spiritual depravity. They understand their spiritual need. Now, let me just simply go to the end very quickly and I'm going to come back to that. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Back again to what I was just saying to you, the, the mind in the, of the Jew. Am I able, am I qualified to enter the kingdom of the Messiah? And Jesus said, here is to, to, to my disciples who have this disposition concerning themselves. That is poor in spirit. They recognize spiritually that they have need. And even in all of these things in your mind, contrast them over against the Pharisees. The Pharisees considered themselves to be in good shape. That's why Jesus would say, I did not come to call the righteous because that's what the Pharisees thought they were, but I came to call sinners. And then again, Jesus would say, what? Uh, for those who are well, do not need a physician, only those who are sick. So you must acknowledge the sense that you are unrighteous. You must acknowledge the sense that you are sick. And the Pharisees are the other side of that coin. They think they're in good shape. They think that if anybody's going to make it into the kingdom, they will. And so Jesus contrasts this over against the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day, poor in spirit, recognizing that you have spiritual need. So now allow me to advance, advance the theology of all of this to show you how even though Jesus did not clarify that this was about him, but as I told you earlier, all of this points to him. Poor in spirit, it means basically this. I am not able. I of myself cannot. I have a need that only God can fulfill. Notice as Jesus even said uh, later again in the text of scripture, I alone, and I added that alone because that's what Jesus was speaking. He was speaking in exclusivity. I alone am the way. I am, I alone am the truth and I alone am the light of God. And no man comes unto God except through me. So therefore, Jesus in his provision of life, provision of his own righteousness that is added to our account and Jesus own satisfying the wrath of God, that is going to the cross and Jesus's resurrection from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was approved and accepted of God. And therefore, only by faith in Jesus alone can a person be saved. So you must first have this realization of this poor in spirit. I have a need that only the Messiah can satisfy. And when I have faith in the Messiah and not in myself, that alone qualifies me to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, you are blessed when you understand and realize that you have a spiritual need that only I can provide, that only I 
can satisfy. And this and this alone gets you into the kingdom of heaven. And so then he continues, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And notice in all of these statements concerning the blessedness, there is this continuing sense of humility to the believer, a continuing sense of humility to the disciple of Jesus. But let's just go on. Those who mourn, mourn why? Simply because they're unhappy? No, the idea is mourning for their sins because bring these two things together, poor in spirit, mourning for sins. There is a need. I am a sinner. I cannot rectify it. I cannot fix myself. Therefore, only the Messiah can bring me out of my sin, deliver me from my sins. But as I look and reflect upon myself, it brings me to tears because I understand I am a sinner sold unto sin, separated from God. And there is absolutely nothing that I can do to bridge the gap between me and God. So guess what that makes me do? I weep. Why? I want to be in the presence of God. I want to be uh, forgiven, relieved of all of my sins. But what? What is the great theology? Only the Messiah can do these things. Only the Messiah is an answer for the sin of mankind. Remember that John 3 and 16? For God in this manner loved the world. How did God show his love of the world? He gave his only begotten son on the cross to die for our sins. And if you believe in him as the Messiah dying for your sins, you will not die for your sins, but you will live forever in the presence of God. So now notice you are blessed when you understand spiritually concerning sin you are lost and there is nothing you can do. And you then turn to the Messiah as one who takes away the sin of the world. You are indeed blessed. And in time, you will have this comfort when you will experience this comfort when Jesus ultimately pays for our sins on the cross. OK. And then he says five. Blessed are the gentle and that we're, we're praises. I think it's praise, praise, praise. The gentle or blessed are the humble for they shall inherit the earth. And that is it. Notice how all of it contrasts against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The last thing they were were humble. They were arrogant and self-sufficient and thought they had no need of nothing. But understand this. If you are going to enter into the kingdom of the Messiah, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to recognize, you need to humble yourself to know you cannot do this of yourself. The only way, and I just quoted it, what Jesus said, I alone am the way, I alone am the truth, I alone am the life. The only way we can enter into the kingdom and even enter into the presence of God is by virtue of the Messiah and all that he does alone. We are saved by faith, not in what we do. We are saved by faith, by what Jesus did and Jesus alone. And this requires an humbling of ourselves. And when you can humble yourself in this manner to depend completely on Jesus, 
truly you are blessed and you shall inherit the earth. You shall enter the kingdom. It makes me think of that old song that simply says these words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly, completely lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, that solid rock I stand. And all other grounds, my righteousness and anybody else's righteousness is sinking sand. All other grounds is sinking sand. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And that's what Jesus was saying to that. And now, as, and then he begins to say at the very end of it, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. Because notice, it's a blessing, realizing that what? You are not righteous of yourself. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. Notice, it's a continual theme of this thing. So therefore, you are hungering for it. I want to be righteous. I want to be right in the sight of God. And once again, who only can make you right in the sight of God? What did Paul say? Romans 5. Now we are having peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. How? Through what Jesus has done. Jesus alone. So if you are hungering for the righteousness of God, you understand it is only the righteousness that Messiah gives us. We are righteous. What did it say? Genesis 15 and 6 concerning Abraham. Paul made this argument, Romans 4 and 5. And Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, it was accounted to him. It was put on his ledger declaring he was a righteous man. And we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, son of God, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and faith in him alone is put on our ledger, is accounted to us as righteousness. So if you are truly hungry for that righteousness, look unto the Messiah and guess what? He will satisfy you. He will give you the mind to know that you are saved and that salvation can never be taken away from you. For those who trust in Jesus, as the scripture said, out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. And he's probably going to get in all of that because I think I'm almost preaching instead of teaching. But let's just go on. And so they'll be satisfied. The Messiah satisfies salvation. He gives them the righteousness that they seek. Okay. So now let's go to the next section and the next section, just like the law did. Remember the first part of the law as God spoke from the mountain, Jesus himself speaking God, he is God speaking from this mountain concerning man's relationship to God concerning what man's relationship to Jesus, man's dependence on Jesus. That was the first section. Now let's go to the second section of this teaching. The second section was just like the law of Moses, as God spoke on Mount Sinai, man's relationship or dealings with mankind. And now Jesus is going to give the same. It is such a beautiful thing. Man's or his disciples dealing with one another or mankind. So now let's begin this next section. Verse number seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let's stop there. So let's look at it. Blessed are the merciful. And so the idea is, notice he's not talking about so much as him to us or us towards him. We can show God, God no mercy, okay? But us towards our fellow man. It is a blessed state that you have. It is a spiritually satisfying state to show mercy even to those who deserve no mercy. Why? Because Jesus says in return, they receive mercy. They not only receive mercy from men, because Jesus said it later on, if you show no mercy, you receive no mercy from men. But also, too, there is a mercy that we receive from God. There's a compassion that we receive from God. And as we work our way through this text, because God is merciful and kind to all we should also practice this mercy and kind to all because it demonstrates that we are God's children. But we're not quite there yet, but let's keep on working. So mercy, mercy given to others is mercy that shall be received. And then again, the blessedness to the pure in heart. Now, the idea of pure in heart basically deals with motivation. It deals with the reasons behind what we do. And that's why we always need to keep that in check. I, Eric Lee, I always need to keep that in check. Why are you doing what you are doing? For God knows the hearts of men. God knows the reason why you're doing it. Are you doing this for some sort of self gratification or for some or for some some kind of self exaltation that men would think more of you than they should? But why are you doing it? Is your heart right before God? What does the scripture say again in the book of Hebrews? For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two edged sword, even piercing to the dividing of the heart. It knows the thoughts and intents of your heart, of my heart. Okay, but nevertheless, right, pure in heart, they shall see God. When your motives are right, when it's not hypocritical, when you are not a hypocrite as it pertains to the things of God, the righteousness of God, accepting of Christ himself, in the end, what? You are promised into the kingdom. You shall see God. And then once again, blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the sons of God. Notice how he brings it all to a penote, all to an exalted state. Those who seek to make peace among men, not those who seek to quarrel. And, and all of this, a lot of times the quarreling, the foolishness comes out of pride. And notice this, it is the very antithesis of those who are pure in heart. If you're pure in heart, it comes from a state of humility. But, and, and, but if you are, and if you are seeking peace, it comes from a state of humility because you're trying to make peace. You're not trying to get into self-aggrandizement or self-recognition or arguing for the sake of arguing. And James deals with this issue, but I won't at, at that time. But anyway, so he talks about the peacemakers because what ultimately what they should be called the sons of God. So in all of these things, you show qualities and attributes of God and God desires his children to look like him. Okay.
So now let's go to verse number 10. And now we'll see why this blessedness should never be considered as happy because happy is a momentary emotional state. What momentary emotional state? What Jesus is talking about is regardless to what's going on in your life, you are happy in the sense of spiritually blessed and this abides forever throughout your life. Okay. So now let's just simply get into it. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So now let's look at it. So now he's talking about this spiritual state of blessedness in the face of persecution, suffering, and hardships, especially such persecution and hardship that are brought upon you from unbelievers. So let's look at the first state. Those blessed are those who have been persecuted. Notice for the sake of righteousness. Sometimes I hear those foolish songs. I've been abused and I've been scorned. I've been talked about. Show as you're born. He ain't even talking about you. This does not apply to people just simply talking about you on the job and all of this other foolishness. Jesus qualified this persecution. It's qualified if you're being persecuted for righteousness and even such righteousness as pertains to Christ. Because what? He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is, Jesus is our holiness. So blessed we are we when people begin to persecute us for what and in whom we believe. I believe in Jesus the Messiah. I believe he is God with all my heart that he died for my sin. And when you begin to be persecuted for the faith, Jesus says, this is blessedness. This is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This shows you such people, such ones who do what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Remember that Jewish mindset. And even for us, the principle is still the same. So then he begins to go again. Blessed when people insult you and persecute you, say all kind of evil things about you. But notice, because of me, not because they don't like you or because they got a thing against you or because they think you think you're all of that. That's not about it. But once again, it all pertains. It all deals with Jesus, the Messiah. So blessed when people talk lie on you, persecute you, say all kind of nasty, good, I think he did this, and good, good, blah, 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 blah. And they really saying it because you're a believer in Christ. Why? He says, because of me, I'll rejoice, that's the end of verse number 12, and be very glad because what? Your reward will be great, not on earth. But notice what he says, your reward will be great in heaven. And the reason why I emphasize those things for the sake of righteousness, because of me, because people messed that all the way up. No matter what people say about you, for whatever reason, 
This does not give you the blessedness that Jesus is speaking of unless it's about him. And then Jesus says, because when people do these things, they persecute you and talk about you because of him, because of righteousness. He says, you receive a great reward. And here's my next stress point in heaven, your reward. And please get this. If you are thinking in this way, get it out of your mind. It is scripturally unsound wrong to think. Jesus never taught that you will have great reward in this life. You will receive some things in this life, but ultimately the reward for God's people is in heaven. So stop looking around and thinking that a Cadillac is a blessing from God. It is not. Thinking that a house is some sort of great blessing from God. It is not. These are just temporal goodness, temporal blessings from, and temporal means temporary on this earth, in this life. The blessings for God's people is reserved when Christ appears. Notice, when Christ appears, then we receive our reward. Then he will say, well done. When we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that's when we're in heaven in the rapture, then he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been uh, faithful over a few things. Behold, I'll make you uh, a ruler over many things. And then he will say, you've been faithful over these things. Behold, now I will make you a ruler over 10 cities. My point is our blessings are reserved ultimately in heaven to be exercised in the messianic kingdom. I can't get into that. To be exercised in the messianic kingdom, our time for blessing is not in this life. These are just temporal things, okay? And then Jesus links us in relationship. He links these Jewish people. Oh, these are principle. When I say us, I'm dealing with the principal application of these things. With the prophets, because what? They persecuted the prophets, and so and the prophets were righteous men. And they persecute you and you too are righteous men. But never forget, as we have worked through this issue, let us stay in the context to which Jesus is preaching here to a Jewish people that they should accept him as the Messiah. And upon accepting him as the Messiah, he and he alone can give them the coming kingdom of heaven kingdom of God, and they will have an entrance. They will be accepted in this kingdom based upon their acceptance of him. And he tells them how they qualify for this kingdom. Okay. So now what we, what have we seen? Let's review because all of these guys connects so beautifully in the teachings of our Lord. He says, what kind of individual, what, 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 qualifies an individual to come into the kingdom. Notice poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All of these things pertain to only that which Jesus can do. And then what qualify and to such those who are qualified for the kingdom, who look to the Messiah to do things, to grant them interest into the kingdom, his life, death, and of ultimate burial and resurrection. But who look unto the Messiah to do these things, 
How should they conduct themselves, conduct themselves in humility, conduct themselves in righteousness towards their fellow man? OK, even when such fellow man begins to persecute you, you got it. So the last thing we're leaving off with is what the persecution by these unrighteous people, but still be good to them. Be merciful to them. Treat them even as your heavenly father does. He calls his son to shine not only on the good, but also on the bad. And therefore these who come into the kingdom, these ones, such ones who are entering the kingdom through the Messiah, you have a job to do among the unrighteous. What? Those who are coming into the kingdom who will be in the kingdom, but the kingdom is not yet. So until that time, you are among the unrighteous in the world and being among the unrighteous in the world, you who are coming into the kingdom have a responsibility. And this prepares us for the next section. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Okay. So now this, this, you know, isn't it a beautiful thing? We are principally speaking, but to those Jews seeking to enter into the kingdom, to be qualified to enter into the kingdom through how the, what the Messiah does for them. He says, now you are still among sinful men. You still have a job to do. You have a function to do. And that function is preservation. You are the salt of the earth. And so salt was used in common times during the time of Jesus for preservation. You would preserve food. They didn't have refrigerators and deep freezing things of that nature. So they would use salt in order to preserve food. But what happens as Jesus continues teaching, if the salt becomes tasteless, if the salt loses its saltiness, is no longer is able to do the function that it was used for. That is to preserve. Now it becomes taste. Let me tell you about the preserving things. How is it people of Jesus day, even principally applied to us? How are we salt? We preserve this world in this present age from falling into total Anarchy, total evil, the presence of God's people in this world, the presence of the elect. So the presence of God's people in the time that Jesus was talking to them, those Jews, even principally applied now, the presence of God's people now in what we call the church, the elect of God, those who are truly saved. We preserve the world from falling into total anarchy and sin from the devil, we become that preservation that keeps the world from falling into judgment because, and I don't want to get into all of the principle of this thing, but when the world, it is a common principle and it's taught even from Genesis. Okay. This is why the flood came. 
the world sins and as the world sins and sins and sins, it comes to a point where God no longer overlooks the sins of the world, but he judges the world for their sins. And this is what brought about the flood. Okay. So that's a principle of God. When that cup of iniquity is filled, it brings judgment. Then God brings righteous judgment in that same sense, the church, I'm speaking for us today. And this also pertains to them in the text, but it performs a function by maintaining our presence, maintaining our lives, living righteous lives before the world to gather the attention of the world, to keep the world from falling into absolute sinful despair. It keeps the world from falling into divine judgment. So therefore we function as salt. We function in a sense of preservation. And that's what Jesus was saying to them. But what happens when they no longer keep this function? That is when we no longer do our job. He says, when the salt has lost its saltiness, its taste, it's no good for anything. You just get this worthless salt and throw it out and men just walk on it. It's not good for anything. So now I'm going to preach a little bit. This is the state of the church today. This is the state of the church today. Why? Because the salt has lost its saltiness because the church has lost its power to influence and affect the society. When we look at the world today, when we look at society today and the church keeps quiet, and the church doesn't want to cause a disturbance. It doesn't want, doesn't want to cause a ruckus. When the church kind of like goes somewhere and hide under a rock, instead of being bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus, bold proclaimers of righteousness, bold proclaimers of the gospel, that's salt. When you boldly proclaim and you will not be silent and you don't care what the people say about you, when you don't care what the world say about you, when you say that a man with a penis is a man, he cannot be a woman. When you say God made a man for a woman and a woman for a man and homosexuality is hated by God. When you stand on the principles of God and don't go along with all of this political correct crap, then you are salt. Then you are doing what Jesus left you in this world to do. But what has the church done? The church is basically sided with all of this crap. The church is keeping quiet about all of this crap. The church didn't want to say anything because of what they might lose. First of all, coming to Jesus demands suffering. I talked about that in chapter four. It tells you the first thing you experience is loss. What did Jesus say to uh, uh, Peter and Andrew? Drop your fishing nets. What did he say to James and John? Drop the nets. It demands sacrifice. It demands that God help us to return to this. But anyway, enough that. Now you see why? Salt. The church is salt. But we have lost that in America and even all across the world. It's just lost. We have lost that. And therefore, what did our Lord say? You are good for nothing except to be cast out and men just walk all over you. But anyway, let's go on. 
Another, another example concerning the function, the purpose of God's people as Jesus related to it to them. Then also principally applies to us now. Light, revelation of God, revelation of God's righteousness, how God expects people to live. That's what when the when the world sees us, it's supposed to see that. And Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And then he gives another example. You are like a city that's set on a hill. God's people are supposed to garner, demand the attention of the unsaved world. Like a city on a hill. That means something to look at and say, wow, you can't miss a city that's sitting on top of a hill. And the world does not supposed to miss us. It's supposed to say there is something unique. There is something different about him that's not the same. He doesn't go along with all of the foolishness that we go along. He doesn't do all of the stuff that we do. He is different. What makes him different? The light of God. You are the light of the world. And then he continues on with that example concerning light. Does anybody light a lamp? And then turn around and put it under a basket. Imagine a lighting a candle lamp. Talking about function, what, what you're supposed to do and be for me. You are like a candle. He says, how ridiculous would it be? You're lighting a candle. Why did you light the candle? For light. And then you turn right around and get a basket and put it over the light. Stupid thing. Why did you light the candle in the first place? Again, showing that you are no good to God when you cease to function for him. When you cease to be what? Salt and light to the world, to the unbelieving world. And then he gives another example about a lamp, but, but put this light, don't put it under a basket, put it on a lampstand. And then he says, so that it does what? It gives light to all who are in the house. It fulfills the purpose for why you lit the lamp in the first place, that we might fulfill the purpose for why God saved us and left us in this world in the first place until our Jesus should come again, that we should be salt and light. So therefore, Jesus encourages us in this whole example of salt and light when he says, let your light shine before men, that is, unbelieving men. Let them see Christ in you, God in you, the righteousness of Christ in you, so that why? That not, they don't look at you, it's never to come to us that the attention and the glory and the honor never comes to us, but they should glorify our father who is in heaven. That in looking at us, it turns their attention to God almighty. Okay. So now in that section, what did Jesus just dealt with? He dealt with our function who qualifies. That's the first section to be then how we should deal with one another and then how we should interact with the world. Now, in the final section that I'm going to deal with in this video, remember, I told you guys that you have to be careful because all of these things that Jesus speak don't apply to us. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people of his time who were under the law of Moses. We are not under the law of Moses. So every single thing that does not apply, that is when Jesus began to talk about the law, this does not apply to us. Certain principles do in Jesus teaching, but the law does not. And this is what Jesus is going to get into. 
that temporal part of his teaching that when we say temporal temporary because the law of Moses we know came to an end with the death of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, the law of Moses came to an end. And therefore, we as Christians today are only under what we call the law of Christ or the law of Messiah. That is those things that are spoken by Jesus specifically for his church and those things taught by the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament church. So those things spoken by them, apostles and prophets of the New Testament church, they basically gave the rule of life, the law for us today, not the law of Moses. And with that, now let's get into that where Jesus talks about the law of Moses. Verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments of the law and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches the law of Moses, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, see the whole thing about entering the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom that the Messiah should be. Who will enter this kingdom? But let's just simply go into the text. 17. So now Jesus declares that his purpose in coming and and even as the Pharisees tried to uh, say against Jesus that he comes to destroy the law and all of that. Jesus says what? No, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is what we would simply call Old Testament. And we in a general general sense, law and prophets. Old he didn't come to, de to destroy it. Notice instead of destroying the law of Moses, he came to fulfill the law. So all things spoken about the Messiah in the law and the prophets, Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill it not to destroy it. There will be an end to the law. There will be an end. And Jesus is going to talk about that because notice, but, so, but first, before he dealt with that, verse number 18, he kind of speaks in a sense of a vow, a sense of a vow in that sense, until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, I, I promise you, heaven and earth will not pass, when you say pass away, that means to disappear and literally be gone. It won't pass away until even the very minutest of the law. He calls it the smallest letter. And in the Hebrew alphabet, that would basically be the Yod, the Yod, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then he says, or stroke. This would be basically understood like in the alphabet Tet. There was there's this little boot that, uh, that goes on from that. So it literally means this. All he's trying to say is this. From the. No matter what, all of the law, all of the prophets, every single bit of it, all of it, I will fulfill. Notice 
It won't pass away until it's accomplished. So notice what Jesus lets us know here, that there will come a time when the law will pass away. And as I was telling you, that passing away is done when he goes to the cross. But it won't pass away until Jesus literally fulfills everything spoken by the law of Moses and by the prophets. So notice the law will pass away. And that's why we say the law does not pertain to us today. Why? It has passed away. We are under the law of Christ. So you can basically understand it as the law commanded given by the apostles and prophets, those things that they said from the teachings of Jesus, we obey them. Those other things in the law, say, for instance, concerning a witch, killing a witch, concerning if a child strikes a parent, put the child to death. That is the law. We no longer under those things. OK, but now let's go on. So Jesus says it will pass away once he has accomplished it. And so then Jesus talks about the greatness of the law, and that is the greatness of the law during the time of the law until Jesus should go to the cross and die up until that time. So notice what I'm saying. So all the while Jesus is ministering. So until that three years of ministry is over and Jesus go to that cross, the law is still in effect. Until Jesus goes to the cross, what? The law is still in effect. So while the law is still in effect, that every person should teach all of the commandments of the law. And if you teach even against the least commandments of the law, you will be disregarded, called least in the kingdom of God. And so, it, but, but whoever keeps and teaches all of the whole law should be called great in the kingdom of God you shall be accepted in the kingdom of God. Simply to say, until Jesus dies on that cross, the law remains in effect. So therefore, a person must abide by the righteousness of the law. Teach it and preach it, but it will come a time when the law will pass away because Jesus will fulfill it and the law will no longer be te taught and preached, okay? And then he begins to say in verse number 20, which works a transition into the next section that we won't get. Notice, for I say unto you, now notice how Jesus speaks. I say unto you, again, this deals with the authority of Jesus' preaching. Because as we get to the end of Jesus preaching his sermon on the mountain, the people will marvel and they're going to say, he preaches in a wonderful way. He doesn't preach like the Pharisees. And I'm a little premature, but let me simply say what I said, because Jesus said, I say unto you, whenever the Pharisees would teach and preach, they would always quote other scribes or other Pharisees. So rabbi, so-and-so, so-and-so say rabbi, rabbi, and they would quote so much rabbi to be to agnosium, rabbi this, and scribe this, scribe this, and then they'll say a particular point or a teaching. Jesus doesn't teach this way. He says, for I say, why? I am the Messiah. The law is of me and I alone can give you the right interpretation of the law. Okay. So notice now for I say unto you, what? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what? Unless your righteousness, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have that right reason who have 
and search for the right righteousness that only the Messiah can give. So all of that stuff that he was saying earlier in the blessedness, remember that? So if your righteousness does not surpass a righteousness of hypocrisy, of righteousness that comes of the self, a righteousness that must come from being pure and hard, a righteousness that is humble, a righteousness that depends only upon the Messiah to the which the Pharisees reject. Their righteousness was a righteousness of themselves. They had a, an external righteousness, a righteousness that they wanted the people to see and the people to glorify them because of their righteousness. But deep inside, remember Jesus said, they're like whitewashed tombs. Outside you are white, but inside you are unclean, full of dead men bone. So he is saying, unless your righteousness is beyond, surpasses these hypocritical, self-righteous, external alone righteousness of the Pharisees, righteousness simply of sight, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is the coming kingdom of Messiah. You will not enter that kingdom. And so Jesus says, such ones and all of these things he's teaching who is qualified for the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And now with verse number 20, as he begins to talk about the righteousness of the Pharisees, external hypocritical, he begins further to teach about these Pharisees or in other words, well, what were the righteous conduct, the self-righteous conduct. What was the self-righteous conduct of the Pharisees and how did the Pharisees teach the people that they should have or exercise righteousness that should get into the kingdom? Because what we're going to find out, the Pharisees are going to teach that simply by being a Jew, and that's what you can see in the earlier part of Matthew 5, the Pharisees taught simply by being a Jew, you qualify for the kingdom. And Jesus in this aforementioned teaching taught, being a Jew alone will not qualify you for the kingdom. You are blessed to enter this kingdom upon qualifications of believing and trusting in the Messiah. All right, guys, thanks for joining with that teaching. Join me next time as we could and hopefully finish Matthew chapter five as Jesus deals with what? the teachings of the Pharisees and saying to the people, the righteousness, your righteousness must go beyond the writings, the righteousness of these self-righteous Pharisees. All right, guys, see you then. <laughs>